Welcome to a very special, very fun, very holiday episode of The Goods, a film podcast. As usual, I have Brian here with me. How you doing, Brian? Hey, Dan. Merry Christmas. And also, we got a guest. We got our pal, Gavin McDowell, returning for, what is this, your third appearance on the pod? Uh, yes, this is my third appearance, so I want to say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Uh, though we're recording in 2023, this should be early 2024. That's right. We are recording this very early in December of 2023, but we're doing something that I don't think we've ever done in Goods history before, which is we are going to publish this on a date in the future that has significance, which is January 6th. Is that right? Gavin? Yeah, it should, be, it should go up on the Epiphany January 6th, which is a date that's um, I commemorated in at least one of the films uh, explicitly. Uh, see uh, the Feast of the Three Wise Men. And I believe all three films have the same title, The Three Wise Men. And they're all about the three wise men. To be fair, Dan, you didn't need to tell anybody that we were pulling strings behind the curtains no but like if there's a major world event and like we're not referencing it like if joe biden dies and we don't talk about <laughs> joe biden dying like that would be weird or something right maybe not <laughs> maybe not i suppose i think i think we could have pulled it off what recorded like a special uh edition at the end breaking news joe biden died oh well i don't mean in that case <laughs> i i guess if it came to that that's all right you know what? I might edit this out, but if I don't, readers, you just got to peek behind <laughs> the idiotic curtain of the goods. <laughs> so just to remind people, as if the the level of intelligence on display here uh, was not evident, um, Gavin brings up our, our intelligence, or at least our level of education, because Gavin is a biblical scholar. He's our go-to for anything related to biblical study, or I would say pretty much anything European, and I assume Gavin will have okay. an opinion or knowledge on, um, or historical. Like, really, Europe, history, but in particular, biblical stuff. Right. My go-to ancient Israel guy. Oh, this is the first time I think we're actually discussing a biblical uh, subject. It's like last time I had you watch, I had you watch movies in Arabic and Hebrew. And now we're moving on to the, the third Abrahamic religion, which is Christianity and a Christian, I'd say, uh, Christian language, if you consider Spanish that, I think most of, uh, and then this Hallmark, whatever it is that Brian made me watch. I think it's the first <laughs> time for, for, for you guys uh, to force a guest to actually watch something on their own, thematically related. That's right. We got to do some proselytizing too. So I think we already said this, but the, the topic of the films, uh, plural, that we watched and we're discussing is the three wise men. And 
the main topic of discussion is a 2003 direct to DVD, at least in America, but it got, I think, a Spanish theatrical release animated film that's just called, in English, it's called The Three Wise Men. But what is it called in Spanish, Gavin? Oh, I have to say it in Spanish? Okay. Well, or you get to suffer through me saying it. Los Tres Reyes Magos, which is exactly the same thing. The Reyes Magos uh, in French is Wamash. It's like the king, the king magi. It's like, yeah, the three magic kings. You don't use the magic kings. I mean, okay, well, I'll get into the weeds in that, in that soon enough. But basically, it's the same thing. In English, they're colloquially called the three wise men. In Spanish, I guess, they're colloquially called, called eh, the Reyes Magos. Um, and I guess, can I, can I get into the background why I chose this film? Absolutely. Well, actually, hold on. Before we do that, let's just say that the other two films that we're going to discuss, uh, there's a, a 1976 film that I think was a source of inspiration for the 03 film. I don't see how it could not be. Yeah. And then Brian tacked on a short a 2006 film also animated that also tells the story of three wise men in a slightly more conventional manner as we'll see (laughs) right but i I thought when else would i get the chance this was the perfect moment yeah so go ahead and tell us why this 2003 film in particular is one that you picked for us gavin right so i write a column for alternate ending which also hosts uh, the only other movie podcast on the internet (laughs) and it's called sex lies and videotapes it's a dad joke it actually came from my dad and the very first one was actually destiny so as i recorded the episode on destiny and i wrote a column about it and i decided it would be fun to get reader feedback have people assign me films and so this year 2024 every single column will be something that that someone else suggested to me and the first person to do this was a fellow on letterbox named pulpitunes who i don't know really anything about them i know two things they never they never hit the like button uh, they will comment but they'll never like your reviews and the second thing they're kind of a masochist they'll find obscure subjects and they'll watch every film on that subject so I saw that they had a moment where they were watching every single film that was about like classical mythology, even no matter how obscure or bad it was. And they alerted me to the existence of the 2003 film, which they had seen, I think, as as a child and told me this is the story of the wise men, but it's like a fantasy epic. And I said, how can I pass this up? <laughs> and no sooner had I fit, was like, well, trying to find this movie on YouTube, I stumbled across the Mexican film. And I thought, I can't believe it. There's two of them. Like, maybe this is a Spanish thing to have these daft wise men film. I don't know if there's others out there. And I don't think I want to know at this moment because two is enough. <laughs> yeah, this is like, I saw this. I wrote a, a um, uncharitable review on Letterboxd in preparation for my column. And the review caught Dan's attention. <laughs> he just posted it on the goods, the goods letterbox. And I thought this could be fun. It'll be a lot more fun. The, the movie or miniseries that, that I intended to talk about the next time I was on the show. And hopefully we'll still do that on Masada, which is like six to eight hours long and is, uh, you know, peplum style. So, so a lot, very talky. And this is 70, 70 minutes, a 70 minute film plus 10 minutes of credits. And it's ought to be an interesting conversation because this film is, is really out there. And I encourage everyone who loves bad movies and bad animated films or just things that are weird to, to seek this one out. So I think I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> I mean, 
I would start with cuckoo bananas ahead of bad. <laughs> to me, weird is the prominent thing more than bad. But we can we'll talk a little bit more about it. Yes, it's, yes, it's very is definitely very weird. Okay. <laughs> Your review definitely caught my eye. The first line of it was something along the lines of, "What if the three wise men was Aladdin?" <laughs> That's. I mean, we'll get there. <laughs> so. I read a little bit more about this movie and, and it's it's kind of interesting. So it came out in 2003 and I have a couple of things that I think are relevant for 2003 we can talk about. And I think it got a theatrical release in, where did I see this? Like in Spain, maybe? Uh, that's the country of origin, so that would make sense. I think this is probably a, predominantly a Spanish film. And then it got a independent English dub by a company called Telson, T-E-L-S-O-N. And then Disney picked it up. What? Yes. Disney <laughs> Disney was responsible for the wider DVD release. And they, they funded a second English dub that had a bigger budget behind it that came out in 2005. So two years after it hit theaters in Spain. Is it the Disney dub that has uh, Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez? That's right. Okay, that, that explains a lot. <laughs> the higher budget dub has Martin Sheen, Emilio Estevez. All you got to know is if you look it up on Wikipedia, most of the links for the second English dub on the cast are clickable. So they are actors of some note, whereas the original Spanish voice actors and the first English dub, almost none of them have blue Wikipedia links. So um, the now the, the second dub did actually carry over a, a couple of the voice actors from the, the original dub. So how did we each watch this in terms of what we were hearing? I procrastinated on it. I didn't watch any of these movies until this weekend. <laughs> Sorry, what a weekend. <laughs> I know, yeah. So when I was like on Friday, I was, or maybe it was Thursday, I can't remember, but I was frantically texting Brian and Gavin like, how do I watch this movie? Where do I find it in English? What's going on? And then I did some Google foo and I found an English dub on YouTube. It's exactly 70 minutes. It cuts out the credits, which I was disappointed because I wanted to see like the full credits. Like I wanted to see everyone who was responsible for this. The credits are absurdly long. It's like, I got up to take a break. I came back and they're still going. <laughs> it's tough. I take it back. It doesn't completely cut it out, but it cuts out all but like 30 seconds on the so I watched it as an English dub on YouTube. But what about you guys? So I watched it in like a very low quality upload. So it was like blurry and it was Spanish. And YouTube has a feature now called auto translate that'll make English subtitles. So that's pretty cool, but it's also still in like the experimental stages. So I feel that I was definitely missing something. I didn't know that there was an English dub when I watched it. Also, this week, I've watched four Christmas carols in addition to the three Wise Men movies. <laughs> so I've been like jumping back and forth. So I'm a little lost about this one. It's, I mean, it is the first one. Well, the day of recording is the first Sunday of Advent. So we are in Christmas season. It's not, not too early. Uh, I saw this. I tried to find the English dub. I desperately wanted to know who, who Martin Sheen and Emilia Estevez. Oh, I guess if you don't know, you should know if you like movies, they're father and son. Uh, the the Sheen Estevez uh, crime family and notably missing is Charlie Sheen of Charlie Sheen fame. This must have been before his infamy had become fully known. 
No tiger blood yet. Martin Martin Sheen was still doing the West Wing, I believe, in 2003. Uh, uh, Amelia Estevez is in Disney's pocket, I don't think. Huh? I don't know if he'd have a career if not for Disney. Maybe that's not true. I'm not a huge fan of Amelia Estevez. But Martin Sheen is definitely a, a someone of note. Um, right, but I didn't find that dub. I did not find English dub. I ended up with something in Spanish, but it was clearly not Spanish-Spanish, not Euro-Spanish. If you've ever seen the movie... Was it Popstar? Oh, Never Stop, Never Stopping? Yes. Uh, the main characters of that film, when they go to Ibiza, they discover that uh, European Spanish is not pronounced the same way. They kind of, uh, they roll their sibilants like they have, as they put in the song, like they have a gap in their teeth. So they sing about a, a song about it called Ibiza. <laughs> so you don't hear those thoughts in the version I watched. So I suspect it was a Latin American dub. That didn't matter much to me. I claim in my CV that I can read Spanish. And so I didn't know about this auto-translate thing, so I just put on closed captioning and relied on my knowledge of French and Latin to try to make sense of the film, uh, which fought against me, both because like Spanish is not French or Latin, and also because this film, <laughs> my jaw was agape for most, most of the film. Uh, and then I watched this film in one go. It was pretty easy to go down. And then the, 80s, the 76 film, uh, I watched it in two blocks, probably separated by at least 10 days because uh, it was a lot harder for me to watch. It's longer for one by about 15 minutes. And I did find the auto-translate feature this time, but it didn't, it didn't make it a more pleasant experience. And I guess we'll get, we'll get onto it. I think the 76 film was a much harder watch, despite being uh, at least as crazy as the 2003 film. So yeah, two two films in Spanish, and then I watched the short one. Of course, I think there's only one widely available English version featuring the vocal stylings of Andy Griffith in a sing-song voice, which I, you know, I'll, I'll reserve I'll reserve uh, comment until we get to that point. <laughs> so, do we want to talk about the biblical and historical context for the Three Wise Men before we dive into it, or is that something that will fit in organically as as we discuss? I think it might be hard to fit in organically. <laughs> I was going to say that, yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of biblical context. I mean, like the, the wise men, it's it's one story in the New Testament. It's Matthew 2. So I guess if you take any basic Bible or intro to New Testament class, you know, there are two infancy stories in the Gospels, which are often harmonized in Christmas specials, including the 2006 film, the short film. I'm going to call that one the very first Noel because that's its real title. <laughs> And to distinguish it from the two Spanish Spanish language films, uh, so like Matthew Matthew two, it starts out with uh, Magoy, this magi coming from the east, they're following a star. They visit Herod the Great in Judea, and they tell them that uh, a new king is going to be born. <clears throat> Herod says, "Please come back and report to me when you find him, so I can give like I can um, honor him as well." And they find the baby Jesus. They give the three famous gifts: uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then they they stiff Herod. They leave him on they leave him on red, <laughs> and just go back go back home by a different route. And Herod is so angry about this that he decides to have every infant male child of the vicinity just uh, slaughtered. But the holy family escapes to Egypt. And that part that last part is not suitable. <laughs> obviously not suitable for children. Obviously cut out conspicuously cut out from all three films. <laughs> right. Unsurprisingly. The thing that Matthew 2 doesn't say, it doesn't say they're kings. It doesn't say there are three of them. And you know, they all come from the same place, which is kind of the assumption. 
and there's a whole lot of extra biblical writings about the wise men because it leaves a lot of questions open. And I think the only really relevant thing I want to say here is where did the traditional names come from, which are used in all three films. I mean, the, the number three is easy to come up with. Is a, there are three gifts, so there are three wise men. So maybe somebody came empty-handed. Uh, according to one of the um, apocryphal writings that I've been working on, it has 12, 12 wise men, all coming from Persia and with you know, Middle Persian names. It's Magi, I guess I should point this out, Magi is just, a, it's a priestly, the priestly caste of Zoroastrianism. So their priests are called Magi, or you know, in Middle Persian, it's Mobed. So hold on, I want to I wanna dig into what you just said for a second. Okay. So, because this was confusing. So the term Magi, that just means, when we say the three Magi, that just means three priests. It does no implication of magic. Three Zoroastrian priests. Okay. <laughs> so, Can you explain Zoroastrianism a little more? Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is the uh, native religion of Iran, believed to have been proclaimed by the prophet Zarathustra, or Zoroaster is his, the Greek version of his name. And he lived sometime between 1700 BC and 1100 BC. <laughs> so somewhere in that 600 year span, or possibly 600 BC, things we don't know when he lived. But by the time Persia makes a big splash on the world historical scene, that's when they take over most of the, the Middle East, about 600, 600 years before the birth of Christ. They believe in a religion where there are two gods, two primary gods. One is absolutely good. The other is absolutely evil. And they you know, they worship one of them, the good one. <laughs> and it's kind of this, this proto monotheism. They believe in resurrection, the last judgment, heaven and hell, things that sound a whole lot like Abrahamic religions and probably influenced, uh, believe, popularly believed. Scholars, at least, have influenced Judaism during, or during the exile. Uh, the Persian Empire is, in fact, responsible for the government of the land of Judea. And like you have the actual Magi in Persian tradition, and then you have the Greek conception of the Magi, which is completely different. If you, if you don't have any questions, I would like to seek into that because I think it's relevant. Please, please go for it. I'm curious. Right. It's like the, the Greeks, they kind of had the same uh, impression of, of Eastern religions that well, I guess most Western Europeans do is that's kind of mystical and weird and mysterious. And I don't know how they got Zarathustra, but they were very interested in the Aster part of his name. They thought he was a, a star worshiper. You know, Zoroastrians, they, they consult stars. They have special powers. And I don't know for sure if the word magi is where we get magic from, but I've always presumed that. And you have this idea, this Hellenistic idea, is whenever they talk about Zoroaster or, or the magi, they're, they're, they're magicians, benevolent magicians, usually. It's like in Zoroastrianism, like in most religions, practice of magic is considered perverse and evil and of the evil gods. So they have their own very different word for magic and a different conception of magic. And definitely do not think of their own priests as magicians. That's the Greek tradition uh, coming in here. I think it's a relevant here thing in the New Testament is that they, they follow a star. So it's part of this, this Greek tradition. It's not saying a whole lot about Persian religion here. Matthew 2 is not, is not a good source of Persian religion. <laughs> what this 2003 one made me think of is there's a Simpsons Christmas episode where there's a brief cutaway to a Krusty the Clown episode and they're wrapping up a Christmas nativity pageant thing that they're doing, but there's all this stuff in it that doesn't make any sense. And they say, and that concludes our nativity featuring Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the genie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the Aladdin connection. <laughs>
So I want to I want to clarify one thing on what you just said because I want to make sure I kind of understand. So I have Matthew two pulled up right right in front of me. I don't. This is the NIV translation. I I don't know, but it it does say from the east. So are we to understand because they they are magi and it's from the east that they would be I guess Persian like you said they would be from Iran. Yeah, I I guess at the time. The New Testament was written, so I guess if you know the the basic outline of world history, the Persian Empire collapsed very dramatically in the time of Alexander the Great. So this is 300 years, and there was a 500-year period. And we're in the middle of a period where what is now Iran was a bunch of city-states. City uh, we call it the Parthian period. So it's um, it has not recoalesced into an empire. It is quite uh, chaotic and disorganized. Iran was uh, kind of the great enemy of Rome, or I should say Persia, assassinated Persia especially. They constantly were at war with Rome. As I don't know if it's like, uh, like the story of the of Julius Caesar and the Triumvirate. Do you know much about about that period? As there were constant wars with with Parthia, and one of the men of the Triumvirate was killed. Well, there was Pompey, Crassus, and and Caesar, right? Crassus, Crassus was killed uh, fighting the Parthians. If you read the 12 Caesars of Suetonius, there's constant references to Parthians. And it's kind of uh, Armenia was caught in the middle. It's uh, part of the Iranian uh, cultural orbit, but not part of the Parthian Empire, not part of Rome. And they always were caught in the middle of the fighting between Rome Rome and Persian territories. So the thing about Matthew 2 is you have these three foreigners coming over to visit the local king, and he doesn't he doesn't have them spied on which it's like the first time I was actually writing about this this chapter. For my column, I thought about how strange that is. It's like, why doesn't he just have them followed? Hmm, that's a good point. <laughs> Especially since the presence there is kind of, kind of suspicious in the first place. Well, the makers of the 2003 film shared the same... Yes, they picked up on that. Yes, they, had, yeah. they, they fixed that problem, <laughs> created several others. And I actually had a question about Herod that you may be able to shine some light on. So my understanding was that it some point around the advent of Jesus, around that era, there were Jewish revolts. They were making trouble for Rome, and that part of kind of the fallout of those revolutions was that Rome granted them some limited autonomy. So is Herod a Jewish ruler? What what had happened is I should have just I should have just given you the outline of world history from 600 BC until until the birth of Jesus, because that's what I'm going to do. There was a period of Jewish autonomy right before Roman rule, uh, and that's the Maccabean period or the Hasmonean period is the name of the dynasty. Uh, Maccabean revolts against the not descendants but the the Alexandrian rulers, the the Greek generals that split up Alexander's empire and ruled it. So they revolted against the Greeks. They established their own dynasty. They ruled for a good uh, century. And then you had a conflict of succession. And the two the two claimants to the throne, they made a terrible mistake. They thought, well, during our revolt against the Greeks, we sought help from the Romans. Let's do that again. And I'm glad we brought the triumvirate because Pompey, he came down. He, he put an end to the civil war. And he said, I don't trust either of you. I'm establishing my own client king. <laughs> so Rome, basically, they put an end to the Hasmonean dynasty. They picked uh, an Idumean, which is, so you know your story of Jacob and Esau in the, the Bible. 
Uh, Esau is Jacob's brother, uh, also known as Edom, and the Edomians are related to the Edomites. Uh, they had been forcibly converted to Judaism in the Hasmonean period, and Herod was the son of a friend of the Romans named Antipater, and they they just said, you're our client king, you represent, like, you can rule over them, uh, and you report to us. And so Herod was, he was a stooge of the Roman Empire. Because in the movies, it kind of varies how Roman they make him look. And in 2003, he's like extremely Roman. Uh, 2003, he is not Herod. He is Nero. <laughs> it's like all the iconic iconography of Nero is applied to Herod. Oh, interesting. Who okay. looks very different in the 1976 film. And neither of them look at all how I picture Herod. Uh, who looks more like, honestly, this this um, this short film comes closer to how I imagine Herod to have looked, but not like I know what he looks like. I don't even know if there are coins of him. Uh, it's kind of this gruff, bearded man. Yeah, I feel he definitely would have had a beard. I mean, particularly if he were Jewish, but I wasn't 100% on that. Well, there's there's actually, I remember there's a chapter, like a book about Jewish identity, and the first chapter is, was Herod Jewish? Because he's descended from a family of converts. He His um, attachment to uh, Jewish law was questionable. He was a terrible human being. Uh, he killed one of his wives and three of his sons, one of which he killed for having him kill the other two sons. So he was a paranoid maniac, but also a great builder. Many of his buildings are still visible. Uh, they're still around, including Masada as a, a Herodian construction project. As well as the second temple, right? He renovated the second temple. Yes. Uh, and there's references to that in the gospel. And Jesus talks about, you know, that you've been working on this temple for 40 odd years. Uh, he's referring to the renovation as the temple had been there for for several hundred years at that point, but it was it's not uh, terribly impressive. So he wanted to make things look good for the Romans, especially because he sided with Antony and Cleopatra during that that kerfuffle. And so he needed to really grovel uh, to Augustus. And then he was he was at least an able ruler. His sons were not. So the Romans, you know, they have the procurator of Judea comes in and takes over because his sons were were incompetent in addition to <laughs> evil. Uh, Herod the Great is a fascinating person, but he's, um, and I've talked way too much about him. He He's important to the Three Wise Men story, so it's relevant. But you just clarified Herod the Great, and that brings me to another question. There are two Herods, right? Uh, there, are, there are many Herods. He, he established a dynasty as well. So you have Herod the Great, who's the Herod in, in the Nativity story. Uh, and then uh, the story of the Passion, uh, the death of Jesus, there's a different Herod. And that's Herod Antipas who was his son. And he was not a king because the Romans were directly ruling, but he was given a, a small piece of land. I think he was responsible for Galilee, so you know, Jesus' Jesus' patch of land. And he's the Herod that executed John the Baptist. And according to the Gospel of Luke, he had an audience with Jesus, but Jesus didn't tell him anything, so he was pretty frustrated about that. And then in Acts of the Apostles, you have yet another Herod, who's a few uh, generations down the line. And you have Herod's ruling until until the revolt, the Great Revolt. So when I come back to talk about Masada, I'll tell you about the revolt. The Herod sided, they sided with Rome, who were their benefactors. And once the revolt broke out, they just, they, they, they ran away and disappeared from history. Uh, there are other Herods as well. Tim Brayton at Alternate Ending has reviewed yet another Nativity Story movie called Journey to Bethlehem, which I cannot see yet. But here it's pretty daft as well. And there's another Herod named Herod Antipater, 
uh, named after his grandfather and his father. And he's one of the sons that Herod killed. So he's supposed to be this guy who had a crisis of conscience about killing infants. I am looking forward to that because that stars Milo Manheim, the good favorite. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you were going to say Antonio, star of the zombies films. I thought you were going to say Antonio Banderas who plays Herod, but no, you go to Milo Manheim. Uh, he is he is a celebrity. He's a big star, you know, with all that zombies cred. Uh, <laughs> hey man, on the goods, he is a star. <laughs> yes, you've infected an alternate ending, and now you've got you've got you've got everyone watching the stupid movies, including me. So, uh, not even with my children, yeah. just by myself, watching rapping zombies. <laughs> uh, I have one last topic before we pivot to the movies. I, I have got to get in something very briefly. Is oh yes, right, go for the it. names of the magi. As I told you, in different traditions or different numbers of magi, they have different names. But the three Melchior, Gaspar, or Casper, uh, so G and C are basically the same letter in Latin alphabet, and Balthazar, they come from uh, a very obscure chronicle written in Greek, translated very badly into Latin. It is known among scholars as the Accept of Barbary, the barbaric excerpts, because of how bad the Latin is. And the birth of Jesus, it says, you know, the three wise men visited, and it gives them for, for the first time their names, which became just engraved in Western European tradition. And it's just like it might as well be in the Bible because it's just like it's official. It's the official names. The personalities, as you might notice among the three films, is different. You know, there's not hard and fast attribution of the names to personages, but the, the names themselves have stuck and their their relics, their remains are in Cologne Cathedral in Germany. That's kind of like a site of pilgrimage. Uh so I know my the person specialist Zoroastrianism and who taught me a little bit of Middle Persian. Uh, she she visited Cologne just as a pilgrimage so she could see the three Magi uh, and, and visit them. It's um it's like a crusader thing. As I know they bought pig bones from an Arab who ripped them off or something. But it's it's still uh, once it's tradition or once it's a hundred years old or older, it becomes you know very very venerable. And I I would love to see Cologne uh, Cologne Cathedral myself someday. I, I won't go further into that. That's enough about the history of the, the, the wise men outside of these three films. So I, I said I had one more thing. I actually have two more things before okay. we get into the movie. So one is, and this may be beyond biblical and maybe cultural, but it may be, you could, you're still going to be the most qualified person here to answer this. So my assumption has often been that in Western culture, I'm mostly thinking American where I grew up, but probably all of Western culture, the, the three wise men are so heavily emphasized because of the Christmas tradition of giving gifts. It's like the justification for giving gifts is because of the three wise men. Is that anything you've ever heard or heard theorized before? I mean, it's like the connection between Magi and magic. It's just something I've assumed. It's funny as I have, I have actually a tiny little book called the Christmas book explaining a lot of Christmas traditions and I don't even know. If, see if there's. I, I brought my research with me, so I've got the excerpt of Barbary right here, which I'm not going to read. Uh, let's see the Christmas book. Let's see if there's a a chapter on gift giving. What I have heard is that it was already going on thanks to the Roman festival of Saturnalia, and that this may be a way to kind of, you know, shoehorn it in. I mean, I get I get a little uppity every time I hear that claim that's just a pagan ho holiday that's been redressed. I mean, that's it's not untrue, but it's not it's not Saturnalia. It's a different holiday. 
and I really want to claim that gift giving is exclusively pagan. <laughs> uh, it's a, that's like a pan-human tradition. Every human culture gives gifts. I I just presume that uh, I don't know. The Magi seems seems like a perfectly good excuse to have uh, gift giving for Christmas. I don't think there's a chapter on it, so I just I don't even know how you're going. How are you just supposed to determine when people start giving gifts to each other? It's like when Christmas became holiday is a different matter as it it was several centuries into uh, Christianity. It's it's an imperial uh, festival, I guess. I guess my point was less like that's why we give gifts, but more that's why like every nativity scene has the three wise men or or whatever is because the reason it's so important when you tell the Christmas story is because it connects to what is obviously one of the central traditions of Western Christmas, which is giving out ridiculous numbers of gifts to family and friends and stuff. I mean, I would say that wise men are at the nativity scene because we're in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good point. So last question, and this is the least related, but I was thinking about it at least with the the third one that we'll talk about here. So I, I was raised Catholic. I know significantly less about the Bible than you do. I have read a little bit beyond just what I learned in CCD, although most of even what I learned in CCD has faded. But I did listen to a series of lectures about 10 years ago about the historical evidence for Jesus, just because I was kind of curious. And one claim made in that series of lectures that stuck with me, and I was curious your take on this, is that there is absolutely no historical evidence of the census that supposedly drove Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. And that that, if you were to be looking at it critically instead of religiously, that that is kind of an excuse to get them to Bethlehem, which is important for connecting to other scriptures. But there is no evidence of such a census occurring. Well, now you've made me angry because you're confusing the two nativity stories. The census is in is in Luke, and Matthew doesn't even mention the census. Um, there was a census, but it was about 10 years later than, I mean... That's part of the problem with harmonizing. I think Luke says Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great, uh, but Herod would have been dead at the time the census occurred. It was about like six CE, and probably probably not an empire wide scale. Like the the nativity stories. First of all, the two they can be easily harmonized. People have done it since time immemorial, uh, and they are basically the only the only sources of the events that occur in them. I thought you were going to ask about the massacre of the innocents, as you know, the, we have a pretty extensive biography of Herod, and it's like a soap opera, and no mention of you know. I think that um, a massacre of, of children would be a pretty big miss. What it, it does tie into recurring things in the Bible, especially the the story of the Exodus, uh, that Moses narrowly escaped being killed by the Egyptians who were trying to reduce the number of Israelites. Uh, seems to have been influenced by that and the star motif. In addition to the the Greek tradition about the Magi, I was very happy though. One of the films mentioned this guy by name. Uh, you know Balaam, or they called him Balaam. Andy Griffith called him Balaam. Uh, did you catch that in in the short film? Yes, but that wasn't a name that I recognized. They say they're listing the prophets. They say someone and Balaam, among other things. Speak of the birth of the king of all kings. Right. So Mika, Mika talks about, it's a messianic passage talking about descendant of David uh, coming from Bethlehem, 
which is quoted in the New Testament in, in Matthew, Matthew 2. Of course, Bethlehem was David's hometown. That's why it's important. And Balaam was a seer, a pagan seer, who was invited by one of the foreign kings. When the, when the Israelites were marching into the promised land, he was supposed to curse the Israelites. And instead he blessed them. And one of his one of his oracles is about like something the star of Jacob. Let me get the actual text. I wish I had my NIV in front of me or just any Bible. There was a prophecy about a star. A star would come out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. So another messianic prophecy. And that seems to be connected to the star of Bethlehem. So while we're in this territory, I have a question because you brought up the census. Gosh, darn it. (laughs) No, I don't want to talk about the census. No, Luke, this is about Matthew. (laughs) What can you tell us about Quirinius, the governor of Syria? I can tell you that he ruled about the same time the census occurred, which was too late, about 10 years later. That's about all I know. He is a real person. As far as I know, I did not come prepared to talk about Luke. So I'll resent any Luke in questions from now on. (laughs) All right. Well, I just always like when the pastor will come up and talk about, and it happened when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Oh, that's the biblical text. You read it as written. Well, I know that, but did Quirinius ever think that 2,000 years later people would know that he was the governor of Syria because he happens to be in the first sentence? (laughs) Of Luke 2, yeah. All right. So thank you for its significant background and context. It is helpful. Sort of, because as we'll see, it's actually kind of irrelevant. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having my relevant background. So I actually, if it's okay with you, I kind of want to start, I want to talk a little bit about the 1976 film first, because to me, some of the 2003 film clicked into place when I saw the 1976 (laughs) film, just because I was able to maybe see a pathway to how the 2003 film could possibly exist. So you made a claim in your letterbox review of the 1976 film that it was the first feature-length Mexican animated film. Do I have that right? Oh, the film itself makes this claim. I watched till the end of the credits and like a blue screen comes up and it says in Spanish, it says this is the first animated film made in Latin America, which is horseshit. Uh, Someone on Discord pointed out that the very first animated film uh, came from Latin America. It's lost, but it, you know. right. And they were making a uh, feature film, I should say, because they, of course they made shorts. I think it is recognized as the first Mexican animated feature, and I got the sense it's the same way that Halloween is recognized as the first slasher, and that it's possibly not technically true, but it was important enough that it has claimed this title. It's like the Trivial Pursuit answer to the question: What is the first animated Mexican film? Which surprised me, given the quality of the film. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like animated the whole way through. There are times where it kind of stops. (laughs) Well, you have have still images. I feel like, I mean, the animated material probably passes the feature length point, which is uh, the Academy is 40 minutes, which I don't get me into that. That'll be a long tangent. (laughs) Yeah, it cuts cuts some corners. So the 1976 film... I guess the the reason that I, I'm bringing this up is like, first of all, the 1976 film has like interspersed. So the the parts that Brian was talking about where it stops animating are it like kind of intercuts like every 15 or 20 minutes will get like a song in the background and like stills that are drawings of Joseph and Mary, basically. Right. We keep checking back in with them, the Holy Family. 
And so like this whole time, it's clearly wrapped around the Bible story. Like that that's more relevant in the 1976 one than the 2003 one that we'll talk yes. about. Like it opens with the Annunciation with like a kind of goofy slapstick idiot uh Archangel, is it Michael? Is that the one who Gabriel. does that? I can't no, remember. That's Gabriel. Gabriel, excuse Dude. me. Yeah. My, <laughs> How embarrassing. <laughs> Gabriel, and he's he's kind of a dingus. But the point being that, like, it, it it's built around biblical events, and then it ends with the birth of Jesus and the Magi coming and giving gifts, and then there's all this wacky ass adventure stuff in the middle. I mean, the enunciation is wacky ass already. I was like, when you have this comic enunciation, I thought, who would think to make the enunciation a comic scene? But apparently, I mean, the, the short film, the Andy Griffith film, does a little bit. And apparently, Journey to Bethlehem has a comic enunciation as well. And I'm just like, where does this come from? Why? What about the enunciation? Screams, this must, this must have pratfalls. Well, I think it's that it's, it's like a surprise. The angel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby, even though you're a virgin. And so I've heard comedy explained as overlapping but incompatible frames of reference. You could say the same thing about horror. It basically just means something happens that you don't expect. Uh, I did not expect Gabriel to have his wings set on fire. And he had to. That's, um, yeah. <laughs> honestly, kind of borders on sacrilege. I just, I mean, and I, I mean it did. it's hard to offend me, especially on religious topics uh, it just um it was a head scratcher for me and i thought well i was like this is going to be good <laughs> so it's already done something different from the 2003 film which does not feature the holy family at all to my shock well here's why i bring bring all of that up so two two points one is it's mexican two is that it it is somewhat built around a key biblical story from Luke, by the way. Yeah, so it's already harmonizing Luke and Matthew, so that, that really gets my goat, but, you know. I don't think they were quite that precise when they, they were like, I don't even know if they were reading Bible texts when they wrote this. They were just like remembering stories they learned when they were a kid. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll talk, there's there's a scene later I'll talk about where they screw up the literal Bible. But, okay, so it's Mexican, so, I, I mean, you know, I don't know at, at what point this verges into me just doing stereotyping. So I decided not to just riff myself. I, I found a, a somewhat reputable looking website. This is called Cultural Atlas. So it says, Mexico does not have an official religion. However, Roman Catholicism is the dominant faith and deeply culturally pervasive. It is estimated over 80% of the population identifies as Catholic. Many Mexicans see Catholicism as part of their identity, passed on through the family and nation like cultural heritage. However, not all Mexicans attend church services regularly. Religiosity is most visible in festivities, events, and also the placement of idols throughout people's home and public places. Idols? That's what this thing says. <laughs> okay. So, that's that's a preloaded word. Okay. Well, anyways, the point being there that like what I just read vibes with like the Spanish speaking Catholic communities at the churches that I went to, which is that like being Catholic isn't just religious in the way that I think about the word religious, like having the the spiritual belief element, which as the key, the key thing, but it's a cultural is more even more so for them than it that was for me growing up. So like telling like a wacky comic story, but also like having it be a Bible story feels Mexican to me. If that's not too offensive a thing to say, like this this kind of jibed with me 
as like I could see why a story would be told this way. It, it felt less out of left field than the 2003 film. What I will say is that the 76 movie really leans into its Mexicanism. Like, its state of being a Mexican film in that... So both the 2003 and especially the 1976 get into the idea that the wise men are from, like, the far corners of the globe... They're, you know, they're the, it's a small world wise men that they like represent the different continents. And that, that idea is pretty pervasive before this film. Sure. Sure. No, I mean, we see, we definitely see that. I, you know, like I kind of see it in my nativity set, but the, it's definitely here in 1976 and in 2003, but the Holy Family in 1976 is very clearly Mexican. And the Jerusalem that they're walking around, everybody's got like cowboy shirts with the fringes and big sombreros. I noticed that too. I thought that whenever the sombrero was getting whipped out, I was like, I wonder how many sombreros there were in Jerusalem in the, what year was Jesus supposedly born? Was it like uh, three four, AD or something? Four, four BC. Four, four, oh, four BC. Well, the reason they choose that date is because Herod was still alive. So it's trying to line things up with the chronology given in the gospels. Gotcha. It's like like the last available date for for Herod to have been alive. The idea of culturally, I mean, making the Holy Family look like you, that's pretty widespread as well. It didn't surprise me at all that they would deliberately make them look Mexican. Sure. Yep. I mean, Jesus looks white in most American depictions. Of I've even seen like wood carvings that where the Holy Family looks looks Japanese. It's just that that's kind of. I mean, that's that. That didn't surprise me at all. What surprised me is all the other ethnic stereotypes that you see across this across this film. But no, I kind of appreciate that. I like the cultural stamp that they want to say this is our film. Uh, it's a Mexican film for Mexicans. The other thing is, if it's the first film, I didn't really get to find much on the actual production of this, but that makes me think it's kind of like an independent, thrown together type of thing. And that makes it a little more explicable that you would have all sorts of like random bullshit going on in the middle of your story that don't have much to do with maybe the source story that you were basing this off of. Matthew too, doesn't have, doesn't give you a lot of, a lot of meat to chew on. You have to um, come up with a conflict. Otherwise, I mean, the 20 minute Andy Griffith film covers the material. Exactly. Yeah. That's in 20 minutes. So, so you need to have a goblin. You got to have a goblin. Yeah. Apparently (laughs) in both of them. Yeah. Um, In the Mexican film, I was kind of surprised. This felt like a plot twist for me, as I thought there were, in fact, three minions. Let's just say, Satan is the antagonist in both of these films. Satan, who does not appear in Matthew 2. But, like, why not? Why not have the devil uh, as your antagonist? So is he explicitly the the devil in both of them? Because I was a little confused on that. In 1976, he is explicitly Satan. Is like the big bad, and he has his minion imp. I thought there were three different imps, but it's the same one. I think his name is Mercio. Is the imp? Yeah, he has he has to put in a lot of footwork. As I thought, you know, you have an entire legion of demons. Why don't you dispatch three <laughs> instead of how's he spying on all? This is I don't, stupid ass questions of this film, <laughs> logical questions. But yeah, Mercio. I didn't realize he was until about halfway through the film. I thought he was three different guys. He made me think of Bumblebee guy from The Simpsons a little mm-hmm. bit because he's kind of like an exaggerated caricature comic figure. 
And he, I don't know if he says I, 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 but like, that's the general vibe. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't recall. Yeah. He's, he's put upon, as you said, he's, it's all on him. He's got to do all the work and he's the bumbling. He gets a song towards the end. <laughs> that song. Oh my God. <laughs> it reminds me of a return of Jafar where they have, um, Abbas Mall. Not Abbas Mall, but Iago, who okay. uh, Gilbert Gottfried. Gilbert Gottfried sings not once but twice in that film, and I was like, "Why would you give? <laughs> why would you give the song to Gilbert Gottfried?" Uh, it's like you have Mercio sing. What it's like? It sounds like the opening of Ho- Oklahoma. It doesn't sound like Oklahoma, but it reminded me. There's something about it. So the way he opens, like he he exaggerates the first note of every every stanza, and that that song was that song was grating. That was the low point for me. And it's just his character in general. It's like the devil is badass in this film. I thought. Right. <laughs> so sometimes he's like pure fire elemental, and then he gets on like this cool yellow red robe with like this sort of gem on his forehead. If I'm thinking that was the devil, right? Yeah, that's the devil. Yeah. So he goes by the handle Prince Obeyed, which is Diablo backwards. Mm. Uh, I was like trying to. <laughs> I don't know if that's how he presents himself to Herod because I've watched this in, in Spanish, but that's definitely how he presents himself to the wise men. Right. He looks like a Sailor Moon villain. He's like a beautiful, ornate lady man. I thought he was like a glam rocker. I thought he was like David Bowie. He's putting on his, his Bowie makeup. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, eventually, once his bumbling idiot, uh, Mercio, fails, he uh, the devil rides out. There's this. Um, Scene that was repeated twice in my version, where he gets on his steed and he like flies off into the night. That's the one I watched too, and I was like, "Wait, I think I just saw this. Why is this happening again?" That's like if he can fly, why does he need a horse? I don't. I just, stop asking. <laughs> so I guess we all watched the same upload. I wondered if that was like a commercial break, like if they showed it a TV at some point and they put a cut there. I don't know where the the other commercial breaks are not as evident. It would have been appreciated, but that's I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves like he's he's like the main villain which makes herod completely redundant like why even have herod in this film yeah so it's kind of interesting so herod in this one he's like a a cowering old man he looks a little bit like how scrooge sometimes looks yeah he's got like a gold beard and he's kind of scrawny and he's got like the old timey cap bed cap when we first meet him and i was doing the auto translate and i wasn't catching everything but i think Satan was kind of pushing him around, like Satan was ma- pulling the strings here. Yeah, so that's that's why he's that's why Herod's redundant. Herod doesn't do anything. He doesn't leave his castle. He just consults these three astronomers. I don't. He doesn't even meet the wise men. Like what? What is? <laughs> that's just like I would I would have cut I would have cut the Herod scenes. You know, just just have uh, all loose for all the time. It was interesting to me that he has his own team of three wise men that are doing alchemy in his little ancient lab. And one of them has a wizard hat sombrero, which I want this hat. <laughs> so it's it's what you would think a wizard hat is, where it's pointy and it has moons and stars on it. But then it's also a sombrero. Genius. And that, that's where they really mangle the famous prophecy in Isaiah about you know, a virgin will conceive and give birth. And she'll call him Emmanuel. And it's like, this book says that guy named Jesus is going to be born. It's like, it does not say that. It does not say that. <laughs> I just don't know why Herod is. I just, the Herod scenes were kind of a low point. They were kind of the boring parts of this film, which like the wise men scenes are, I would say are not, are not boring. I was taken aback almost every time we cut to the wise men. There's something outrageous going on. Yeah. 
I just want to say we're, we're already at two things that Gavin has described as the low point, and I'm going to get a tally on how many low points that we achieved. This one has many low points. It's it's a very it's a valley, you know. That's so. Let's talk about who what the three wise men in this look like because about I don't know maybe two thirds I would say of the movie is basically the three wise men independently journeying before they finally meet up. So what are the three wise men? I think the first one we meet is the problem is the personalities are reversed. Like they map onto the 2003 film, but the names don't. So I think Melchior is the, is the one that looks kind of vaguely European. Yeah. Melchior was the European. Um, Gaspar was the Persian. Gaspar is Arab. Yeah. Or whatever. A nomadic tribe who is very white skinned, but okay. He rides a camel comes from a camel riding culture and then balthazar is uh he is a sub-saharan african of some stripe yes he is he is uh he is african africa is not east of bethlehem something i really that really <laughs> grinds my gears so but one of the one of the wise men is is traditionally depicted as as black i was like in in the distant past people did not know the difference between ethiopia and india you know so you go far enough on the globe people start to look different it's one of those places. You walk around the globe, you end up back where you start from anyway. It's, uh, so like representing the various cultures of Earth, or I guess the three continents, right? Uh, before the discovery of the new world. And this is pretty rough to watch. Holy shit. It was <laughs> pretty badly caricatured. The 2003 one has racist caricatures as well, but this one, I don't, I, I didn't realize there were degrees of racist caricature. Like, this one is, definitely worse it is definitely worse uh especially since he has like a chief of staff who looks like a cannibal he looks like magilla gorilla this yeah i don't think he had a bone in his nose but his name was bunga his name is bunga i mean that's his name oh my god <laughs> he looks like a gorilla and his name is bunga and he's a member of the tribe yeah i was like <laughs> pulling my uh collar like Ugh. it's just like Everyone is like this thick-lipped, caricatured African, except for Balthazar himself. It was like this handsome prince. I mean, he wears a headdress, and he doesn't have, like, does he have a shirt? I can't remember. Not most of the time. Okay. There's this idea that the entirety of Africa is still living in the Stone Age. <laughs> it is not comfortable to watch. And all three of them are chasing the star, of course, because that's what they do. But... One thing I found really interesting about this 1976 one that was new to me was the, the way that the star was depicted. So first of all, it looks like a kite or something. It's like it's not a glowing single thing. It's like a a shape that moves almost like a, a comet or something. I don't know. Like it, it just it doesn't look of like how I typically see the the Noel star in the sky. And it talks. The star is a character. Wait, it talks? Okay, I did not catch that talk. And it sings. And it sings. Yes, so the first third of this movie is the star flying around in between scenes. And this is off into the weeds, but in 2021, I dated a girl for a while. And to differentiate her texting me from other people texting me, I set a custom text sound. And it was one of the Apple phone options where it's like a trilling flute. It's like... <laughs> and the whole... First third of this movie is it's going as this star is flying around. So I was like getting triggered by that. 
It's almost like a, okay, I'm looking at a picture of it now. Right, right. I forgot. It's got like a woman's face on it. Yeah. And it's like a long tail, almost like a dragon, honestly, or something. It's kind of interesting. So that was kind of weird. It's like flying around calling to people. I feel like the design of the star is supposed to be a, a cultural element. I, I mean, it calls itself the Star of David, which the Bible does not. That's not that's not a Star of David. I don't know what it is, but it's not something I had seen before. And it was terrifying. It was, it was a terrifying face. It looks like, like if a clock came to life, it was like staring at you. It reminds you of the moon or something. I found, I was kind of with Gavin that I, in general, I found this one. It's It's more episodic, I think. It's just got like, weird scenes over and over again that like don't really connect together that well like i remember at one point a mermaid appeared i was like why the hell is there a mermaid what's just what's happening right now i think the structure of the film the intended structure is that we see individual scenes of the wise men being quartered by the star and then you have an interlude of the holy family and then you have three scenes of the wise men being tempted or attacked by mercio and every one of those is a gem Every one of them is something crazy happening. I wish I, I could not get a screen capture enough. Like Melchior, is, his horse is attacked by a viper or a rattlesnake. And the scene of it wrestling with its horse, like wrapping itself around the horse and they roll down a hill. That's what my mouth, like, how many times have I said my mouth is open for most of this film? It's definitely open for that. <laughs> and then you have Gaspar, like, he finds a spring because he's out in the desert. And it's an evil spring. Not only is the water poison, but it comes to life and it attacks you and you can kill it. <laughs> right. It's like an oasis that's like green and slimy and jumping out and trying to attack you. And he stabs it and that works. <laughs> he stabs the water. <laughs> and you know, the cream of the crop is the mermaid, as you said, is that Balthazar is traveling through the jungle uh, filled with these horrible like monsters and animals. And then you see it's like sexy Afro mermaid uh, beckoning him to come. Of course, there's a trap set up by Mercio. And that is just... I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> he goes for it. He goes for the mermaid. He gets trapped in the weeds and nearly dies. That's what I have like the scariest moment in that film where her, her voice like becomes evil. And she talks about how the devil's reign is coming. You see a flash of his face and it freaked me out. I would say, so I talked about low points. I'd say that was a high point. Okay. This is when I had picked it back up after, after a break and I thought this is going to be a slog. And then you have you have one scene after another of this stuff. And Mercio, you know, cursing. This might be his like his IAI. He's <laughs> <laughs> getting fed up that he cannot he cannot entrap these these wise men. I don't remember how he gets out of the mermaid situation, honestly. There was an alligator also, and I was trying to figure out if the alligator was helping him or No, I think it was going to I think he was supposed to be trapped and the alligator was going to eat him. Okay. It's those dangerous uh, sub-Saharan alligators. <laughs> Guess it would be a crocodile, technically. Yeah, probably some kind of crocodile. So then, towards the end, they all the, the wise men finally meet up. And forget in this one, what happens when they meet up? A bunch of stills. You have, um, you have still images of them chilling. And they set up their tent. And I don't know, I don't know if we know what they talk about. Oh, that's right. It's like they're they're partying. I remember it's scenes of them pouring drinks and clinking glasses together. And I think at least one of them is shirtless. Maybe this is what you're you're talking about here. <laughs> we see that Melchior is a married man. Like we see his wife and kids. Gaspar, I have questions about his relationship to his his camel. <laughs> 
it's pink with lipstick and has a patch of blonde hair. And I'm pretty sure she kisses him at the end. She's like what brings him back from the brink. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another one that's curious. Yeah. We'll come back. This is another thing that shows the 2003 film, oddly enough. And then I guess Balthazar, I hope he's available as he went after that mermaid. <laughs> well, yeah. It, the, the movie wasn't doing right by that character, so I'm not going to make too many assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does He does save the day at the end. That's right. He's the one who stands up and can see through the devil's magics. That's true. Uh, since he has, um, the devil has monogrammed glasses <laughs> in, his, in his palatial tent. That was probably an oversight on his part. Yes, old babe printed on them, and then uh, Balthazar, he, he holds the glass up to the light and goes, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> old babe is just Diablo backwards, uh, at which point uh, things get crazy. Yeah. I actually like that. It's like these, I thought both these films actually got better as they kept upping the ante. And so you have you have like a knockdown, dragged out fight between the wise men and, and Satan, who has transformed into a demon for the occasion. And that was, that was, um, I wouldn't say unironically good, but it was interesting. <laughs> I am going to agree with you that these movies were more fun the loopier they got. Like, yeah, having the three wise men in a physical battle with the devil, I was like, okay, this is kind of badass. This is just kind of ridiculous here. There's a solid minute of like fireballs flying around as the and like the three kings getting punched, getting like smashed over tables. I'm trying to wonder like what is Satan's end goal? Like that's a question I have in both of these movies because if the wise men don't make it to Bethlehem, like so what? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Satan is just always wanting souls. I mean, he could be doing, you know, 50,000 of these little games all over the world where he's just trying to corrupt people. I mean, there is a tradition that the devil did not know that God was becoming incarnate. And the tradition is as birth was done quietly so that he wouldn't notice the star. The whole star thing seems to uh, undermine that. Uh, it's just that the devil is inquiring about strange things happening. He wants to know if there's you know some savior that's about to be born. Of course, he wants to snuff him out, but he doesn't waste his time trying to snuff out the child. He's, he's wasting his time on these wise men who have nothing to do with that instead of trying to kill, you know, straight up kill baby Jesus, which is what Herod actually tries to do. But these films just, just kind of ignore that part. Also, I've noticed there seems to be a tradition in Mexican children's holiday films that you just have the devil be the bad guy. Like there's a Santa Claus movie from 1959 where Santa is battling the devil. Why not? Why can't he, why can't he be the bad guy? <laughs> Uh, certainly a better bad guy than uh, than Herod in either of these films. So the three wise men successfully resist Satan. I can't remember. They don't defeat him because Satan runs away. You can't defeat Satan because that's what Jesus does. Uh, Balthazar stabs him. But doesn't his like essence float up through the tent or I don't know. Yeah, he stabs him and the illusion vanishes. Well, the, yeah, they cry out to God and then like a sunbeam comes down and shines on a spear, which may or may not have been there before. And then, like, the combined power of God and stabbing dissolves the devil. <laughs> it's dangerous to go alone. Here, take this. So which Matthew chapter is that one in? The the spear which stabs the devil and makes him fly away? No, I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> the end of John where it says that Jesus did many other things, but they're not written here. <laughs> the catch-all. It's like the, the 10th Amendment. It's like, just assume that, it, it, that Jesus did these things. <laughs> The states get the the rights. Yeah, well, you have the Holy Lance, right? But that's much later. Don't get me on, don't get me started on that. 
And then, what's the name of the, the little imp dude? Mercio? Mercio. D- Mercio converts, and he gets an altar boy outfit. Yeah, he, re- he renounces the devil, and he has a conversation with Mary. And he's like, is it possible for me to become good? And she's like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> You'll have, it's up to you. And Mary gives me Uncanny Valley vibes. It's like, it looks like a character who's, who is never on model. And that is something that it shares with the 2003 film as well, because uh, Sarah in that film gives me the heebie-jeebies whenever I stare at her face. Interesting. We'll, we'll talk about Sarah for sure. But just to get us to the end of this, the 76th one, and then we can maybe throw a couple thoughts there. So they go to Mary, they give the gifts, and then we kind of have an extended outro, which has a couple more of the stills, if I recall, and then like a sort of glittering outro of the kings saying goodbye and singing a song, I guess. When does the song happen? I'm trying to remember the song. My attention was spent. I, I was not paying attention at this point. <laughs> like after the devil, after the imp converted, I was like, I'm done with this film. <laughs> Anything? What are a couple other stray thoughts on the the '76 one? Disco music, or you know, it sounds like black exploitation music. You know, the the theme from Shaft, <laughs> especially at the beginning, and I think again toward the toward the end, there's some of that. It was made in the 70s, so... There's music almost constantly. Like, overlapping with the talking, jarring. Suddenly, like, in the second act, there's almost rapping. Like, there's there's long verse sections where there hadn't been in the first part of the movie. The, the animated things in the 70s having too much music, I've noticed. Like, the Dr. Seuss specials from that era are just overloaded with this music in the background. It's, and it's like weird funk music. So I think it's just a, a relic of the era. Yeah, it's one of those unfortunate cultural mistakes, but not the worst thing in this film. We'll obviously rate this one at the end, and we can maybe summarize some of our thoughts there. So 2003, The Three Wise Men, Los Three Reyes Magos, or whatever it is. Los, Los three. three. That's how it's written. It's a numeral three, so I'm going to say three. You still, you still read it as tres, so... They don't read numerals as one, two, three. So if you come to this movie blind, <laughs> it makes absolutely no goddamn sense. Well, I think you would just assume it was not about the three wise men if you came in blind. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But if you think about it, they were making a movie that was based off of a famous old Mexican movie where it turned the three wise men into an adventure epic. I, I don't know why you would do that, but that's at least like a thread of an idea. Like I can see how you would get from point A to point B. Not that I would go from point A to point B, but I can at least see that concept there. And, but the weird thing is they strip out everything biblical about it, or at least everything Jesus about it, let's say. Yeah, no Jesus, which shocked me. is like not even at the end, you don't have the tableau, you don't have the nativity scene. No, it cuts away just when you would meet the nativity scene. And then... I don't think in the Mexican film they're actually magicians, or maybe one of them's an alchemist. That's a good point. Yeah, they kind of split it up by having the three guys who work at the castle who are magicians, but they're a distinct group from the three kings. But in this one, one of them is like a teacher at Hogwarts. (laughs) A lot of 2003 things that I think are relevant here. (laughs) So one is, this is post-Harry Potter and post-Lord of the Rings. And I was getting vibes... Well, there was the one scene where we meet one. I forget which one it is. One of the wise men is a Hogwarts teacher, like you said. That was my exact point of reference, too. I think it's Gaspar this time. Okay, so he's teaching a magic school. 
it's milkier or the other one. They basically have one that's, you know, kind of European. The other one is fat. The other one is black. Those are the three, the three basic body types. Uh, so what I noticed in this one, while the animation is better, much better than 1976, which uh, it's all relative. Yeah, very relative. You have to look at this film really to get appreciate how the animation works. But it is, it is better. I will say that. But it seemed like the characters had their designs cribbed like from other bigger movies. At least that's what I was seeing. Like Gaspar looks a lot like the Page Master Wizard, and Melchior looks like Belle's dad from Beauty and the Beast. Oh, I was thinking the Sultan from Aladdin. Maybe with the Sultan mixed in, yeah. Well they look they look a little bit like each other, don't they? The Disney dads. That's a good point. And Baltazar is just another unfortunate racial character. Actually, it's worse. He's a literal magic Negro. <laughs> He's the one who can actually fly and like shoot beams and stuff like that. He has natural magic. Yeah, it's not worse. No. It's definitely not worse than the 1976 one. I apologize. Yes, you're correct. It is not worse, but it's still uncomfortable. It is a little questionable. If Bonga exists in this world, we never see him. <laughs> yes. When we meet Balthazar, he's trying to save some kids from slavers. And the slavers are also African. And I thought, you know, I don't think they're trying to save both sides. <laughs> but it, it feels that way in 2023-24. It's like having this guy like descend from the sky. He's like floating in midair and he releases the children. And again, this, the implication there's no there's no great civilization or empires in Africa is all sub-Saharan, you know, Lion King, <laughs> rolling hills and animals and people with no shirts. That's almost giving too much credit to the, the movie. It's like, <laughs> I guess it's Im implying that, but like there's no coherent geography in this film or anything like that. But, but yeah, yeah. Anytime it got to slavery, it was like, first of all, just weird and like very unformed vision of slavery. Like they just, uh, kind of would mention the word slaves and that would be it basically it's like I, it really didn't have any implication on the plot except they just kind of threw a couple of scenes in there where there were slaves that needed to be saved but i thought animation wise this kind of just looks like a generic straight to video dvd release like it kind of reminded me of the cheap disney sequels from approximately this era yeah that that must be why disney picked it up and released it because it wasn't worse than what they were releasing <laughs> yeah it looks it looks like a saturday morning cartoon i guess that's the nicest thing i can say about it uh low on detail heinously ugly character designs the ones that are original at least uh, one other thing is we brought up sarah so i was like i know this this face design for sarah looks similar and i think it's based off of shell or shell from the road to el dorado did you ever see that movie well i saw a lot of that era of dreamworks films in this like the early when they were still making 2d films so prince of egypt but especially like right after prince of egypt they did one around this time called sinbad or it's about sinbad from a thousand and one arabian nights and like the monster that shows up at the end of this movie seemed like it was ripped from the Sinbad movie. Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas, it came out in 2003. So I feel that that's a bit too soon. Uh, Sarah reminded me a little bit of Meg and Hercules. That's what I saw, yeah. I'm probably giving that too much credit because like, there's something there's something not right with her face. Uh, and it's just like, she's, I mean, we should first of all maybe contextualize her because she's like, 
like this film in addition to the three wise men feels like it's like a marx brothers film where you come from the marx brothers but there's also like a boring couple <laughs> that they need to save and so this one has a boring couple oh, so their names are, are taken from the book of tobit right so you have sarah who is like an action girl with uh you know she bears her midriff which was the style at the time i guess uh and you have tobias who is in the employ of, of herod now sarah and tobias are the name of the lovers in the book of tobit this has other otherwise nothing to do with them can you explain the book of tobit a little more you want this to last forever don't you <laughs> It's one of the apocryphal books, so it'd be in the Catholic canon. And it's just a little novella about a boy who goes on a journey, meets a girl, defeats a demon, comes back to his ailing father. And uh, I could talk at length about this. It's one of my favorite books. I like the main incident is that um, Sarah has been betrothed to seven men who are successively killed by a demon named Asmodeus. And Tobit defeats it with the help of Raphael, the angel. That's why they, that's where they took the names from. Interesting. Nothing else in common except they fall in love. That sounds like a good story. It sounds like a you know archetypal type deal. Fourteen chapters. It won't take too much of your time. But Tobias looks like a fusion of like Milo Thatch and Young Hercules or something. Yeah, I don't even remember what he looks like. Like my mind is just completely blank. It's the, the horror of Sarah staring at me. I took so many screen caps <laughs> of Sarah, trying to figure out what exactly is wrong with her. Uh, and again, like like Mary in the the seventy six film, it's like a character that was never on model. Yeah, she she definitely has something weird going on with her face design. It's like the proportions of her face are off, but like also they change. It's not always the same way that they're off. It's kind of like it's weird because they're kind of vaguely going for a sexy look with her, <laughs> but like it's it, it doesn't really convey. Why don't we just like talk through the story here? Because there's a couple of points we're, we're kind of hopping around, but there's a couple I want to hit. But I would say like the overarching thing about this movie is like the story doesn't really capture the experience of watching it <laughs> because there's something bananas going on in every single goddamn scene. It's like, hold on a second. we What did they just say or what did I just see? Or like, what did that dude just transform into? Yeah, we buried the lead. Like, one of the first images you see in this film is a werewolf. It wasn't the first thing that took me aback, but there's there's a frame story. Yeah, so the frame story, it follows this boy named Jimmy, and it's January 5th, and he's still mad because he, he had a bad Christmas, and he's, like, messing with the, the locals. <laughs> and then he runs to his uncle's shop, and his uncle says, Oh, Christmas isn't over yet. In fact, the cool part of Christmas hasn't even happened yet. And Jimmy says, what? And then it starts to tell him the story of the three wise men, which is, of course, the, the version that all of us have heard. And remember, listeners, Dan watched the English dub, so <laughs> that's where he was Jimmy. He takes, it takes place in the distant past when the world was filled with black magic. I was like, what? <laughs> you see a guy transform into a friggin' wolf, like, in front of your eyes. I was like, what the hell? And then you see Hogwarts, you know, the... The old version, uh, before they moved to England, it's the guy teaching a magic school somewhere in Persia. I was like, what the fuck is this film? <laughs> I may have actually said that aloud. <laughs> and this is like five minutes into it. And then it just gets weirder. <laughs> and yeah, it, it gets weirder and weirder. So it, it starts, we meet the, the three wise men. And what's the fat one in this one? His gimmick is his shadow is a chicken. Melchior. Okay, so Melchior. My mnemonic technique for that is that or is, is in his name. 
So he's the one who's obsessed with gold. He's an alchemist. Very, very clearly. He's looking for the philosopher's stone. Excuse me, the sorcerer's stone in the English dub. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and another word on the dub. I think the one I listened to was not the Disney dub. Because at no point did I think, this is Martin Sheen talking to me. And they all see the star and they say, oh, it's a sign. We must go find the king of kings. And that's all they say about Jesus. He's the king of kings. But he's like, that's nothing. He's like the, he's like the force in this. He's like the generic prophecy we have to go fulfill. He's like, this is where I was thinking of Lord of the Rings. It's like the one ring. The, the king of kings. Like, that's as specific as we get into what Jesus is in this story. I think they backed up into something unexpectedly learned because the king of kings is a Persian title, right? It's the title that the Shah has, the Shah and Shah. It's the literal translation. And Zoroastrians did believe in a savior figure. I'm not sure if they did at this point in time, but I don't, I got the sense that, I mean, why would these non-Jews be interested in the Jewish Messiah, and I guess it's because they have a messianic element in their own their own native religion. Uh, that's giving the film too much credit. Do Zoroastrians levitate? I've never seen one levitate. <laughs> I have to ask my teacher. So let's talk about Herod in this too, because we meet Herod. So Herod is a big fat goober in this one, clean shaven baby face in like a toga with orange hair he's nero like can i find you a picture of nero and just like send it is that what nero looks like yeah well we have coins of him he he, he had a fat face that's one that <laughs> here's there's at least one statue of him with a neck beard and he was you know renowned for his decadence and of course an enemy of, of christian well this is a key point where we will say join our discord and you can see the supplemental media section which is so crucial to the podcast yeah TheGoodsFilmPodcast.com should have a link to our Discord. But, oh, yeah, yeah, this this portrait of Nero is, like, exactly the character in the movie. And his advisor is known as Belial, I think it is. I forget how to pronounce it. Yes, Belial. Belial. And so you're saying, I mean, it's essentially implied that he's the devil. He's got dark magic. Belial is a name for the devil. Okay. One that's used in... In the New Testament, Paul uses the name. It's actually, it's a Hebrew word that just means a worthless person, like a vagabond or, like, or a layabout or something like that. But then, like, you know about the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran sect? They're the doomsday uh, prophecy people of their day. They believed that they were the sons of light who were about to engage in an upcoming war with the sons of Belial. Interesting. And it, and I mean, it's just like a catch-all name. It's like Beelzebub or, I don't know, Lucifer Asmodeus. Exactly. Asmodeus is kind of a generic name for a demon or the devil. Uh, it's not clear if he's actually the devil or if he's just an evil wizard. I would lean toward evil wizard because he has a physicality to him. He can be killed. He reminds me of Rasputin from Anastasia. Okay. Yeah. Not not in look, but in temperament. You know, he pulls things out of his body. He's obviously made a pact with Satan if he's not Satan himself. Uh, he's not a good guy. And he's... Functionally replacing the chief priests and the biblical story. So on the one hand, it's avoiding anti-Judaism by erasing Jews from the story and then presenting a sickly, uh, plotting, evil creature in place of the Jews. So that feels like a lateral move to me. (laughs) 
and I don't think they thought, again, I'm giving the film too much credit. They just thought, you know, Herod is evil, so he must have an evil vizier. Everyone has an evil vizier, even even evil rulers. <laughs> the vizier is even worse. He's, he's afraid of the light. That's his primary character trait. <laughs> also, he's got this eye thing going on. Well, that's that's the Rasputin stuff. Like, he pulls out his eyeball. Okay. One of the one of the things I thought, oh, that's 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 pretty creepy. <laughs> and and he like enchant? Does he actually enchant? I like missed the three sentences where this was set up. <laughs> so the generic handsome guy Tobias, he's he's a plant by the devil, hanging out with the three wise men and Sarah. So there's the three wise men and then Sarah and then Tobias. But I think he's actually enchanted by this like gem that he's wearing. That's the eye of the devil his story was unclear there's like a part about his father that i didn't understand or about a guy being crucified okay so my understanding of it because remember again gavin and i both watched the spanish cut dan watched the english cut so there could be differences even between that but what i got from the spanish cut was tobias was a soldier in like the military that Herod is in charge of. And so he's like loyal to Herod and his father before him was like a general in the army. But then does it turn out that Herod killed his dad? That's, that's what I, that's what I understood. Yes. Okay. And it's, it's a little unclear to, well, the viewer, but also I think it's unclear to Tobias how his dad died. Right. He doesn't know early on. And so he's like a Herod apologist. Right. Sarah hates Herod, and Tobias is like, no, Herod makes some good points. Come on. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what those good points would be, the way it's presented. It's just, you know, a decadent tyrant <laughs> like with no good points. Well, I guess it's like Tobias says, Herod's my boss. You know, he, he pays my paycheck. Herod made some really good points when he was on The Apprentice running that show. <laughs> yeah, so... It- it's like it's it's almost if you like zoom out and don't actually watch it and like hear it described, you're like, okay, that's kind of interesting because you have, in addition to the three wise men, you have like it, the fate of it's going to come down to this tussle between Sarah, who is an anti-Herod revolutionary, and then this guy who is pro-Herod and in fact spying on behalf of Herod. Except they're falling in love the whole time. It's like okay, those are like broad strokes to an interesting story but like i never cared about them at all particularly tobias i didn't care about at all the couple in a marx brothers movie you come for the the marx brothers right the three the three marx brothers well i don't know who zeppo is in this movie but <laughs> they're kind of like he's kind of rolled into bias he's that bland he's two bland characters rolled into one they're not they're not the point of the story i don't know why they're there except that you have to have a love interest in your three king story but you don't have to have jesus yeah, I, I, st- I think you're overthinking it a little bit. It's kind of like what Disney did to Hercules. Like, they're like, <laughs> we got a couple of ideas. We're going to turn that into the story that we want to tell. And except they did it for the three wise men, except they completely cut out Jesus, which, again, is, is baffling. I don't know. I guess maybe they thought it would be like, well, it's not a religious film. It's an adventure film. It's an adventure film about a religious topic. Well, I, I, just, I don't know what they were thinking. It apparently was an integral part of several people's childhoods. According to Letterboxd, as people say, you know, I, wa- I recently rewatched it and it doesn't hold up. <laughs> and I thought, wow, see this, see this through children's eyes. <laughs> they also make the three gifts, three Indiana Jones MacGuffins. They're the royal treasures. They're like magical artifacts. 
the masculine urge to proceed through a series of booby-trapped rooms. Well, Belial is Jafar, who tells the the three kings to go to the Cave of Treasures to retrieve something that he really wants. As like Jafar, he is also plotting to overthrow his his employer. I think at one point he says, you know, then someday we'll have, I mean, you'll have <laughs> control over everything. Yeah, when you said it's Aladdin, I was looking for that. And for maybe the first third, I was thinking, yes, yeah, some of this, definitely. Like, it'll do wide shot cuts to the Arabian streets and it'll do like the little music riff that was very Aladdin. Uh, but then by the end, there's straight up a wisecracking genie. <laughs> and I think in this case it's an ifrit because it's made of fire, so it's a little different. You know, it's it's an ifrit. Well, all all jins are made of fire if you read the Quran. So, like these people have apparently. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up Indiana Jones because I was definitely getting some Indiana Jones from this too. It's like you have have them trying to solve the puzzle to get the artifact. You skipped over the, the weird sequence where Herod tries to kill them after sending them on their mission. I didn't understand that part either. I don't even remember that part. Yeah, it's like it's like half a dream sequence. It's like he comes on a boat, he's holding up a knife, and then something stays. It's like something stops him. He gets frustrated somehow. Uh, and I don't even remember. They got to meet Herod because that's one of the things that's in the Bible. They've already met him. Oh, so this is after they met him. They've okay. After he met him, he sent them on their quest. The big eye is spying on them. And I don't know, I guess... Herod thinks they've journeyed far enough that he can, you know, just dispatch them and get the treasures himself. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It just feels like something they needed something to happen on the way to the cave of treasures. Well, there's just a lot of stuff that happens. There's like glowing map and oh, and something you said, the fact that this eye, this red eye is like the symbol of evil. That's another Lord of the Rings. <laughs> the eye of Sauron. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But like I said, this movie is not really about the overarching plot. It's about the scene-to-scene -scene insanity. Oh, I, I only noticed it when I accidentally reloaded the video, but in the opening of the framing story, there's like a very quick shot, and it's I don't even know why they bothered to put it in because it's like two seconds where you see three homeless guys around a like bucket fire, trash fire, warming their hands, and they're the three wise men, or at least you can see two of them and an outline of the third, and they're the three wise men. So it's doing like a... The Wizard of Oz thing? Wizard of Oz thing, yeah. And you were there? And you? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So the three wise men were actually New York hobos. Apparently, that's yeah. A, that's a choice. I feel like we saw one Christmas Carol that did that, Brian. I think it was the Frasier one. Right, the 2004 Alan Menken musical. Where it's like the lamplighter is the ghost of Christmas past. Oh, wow. I think most of this was actually pretty historically correct. <laughs> particularly when the crazy devil who had plucked out his eye manages to bring the moon to cover the sun. Yeah, that was... Um... And that immediately unleashes his powers. So this is the climax of the film. We're now back to hopping around mode. Well, not a lot happens. I mean, not a lot happens in their journey. There's just T Tobias and Sarah's shit where they go fall in love and then she gets stung by a scorpion. Right. So then there's an excuse to take off even more of her clothes. Yeah, and then they don't go into the Cave of Wonders with the wise men. Then they go through like the three trials where each of them dies or something like that. Oh, it, like they think. Yeah, right. Because it's like a optical illusion chamber type thing. And it's like, oh, I think I see that my friends have died, but they haven't actually. And they each need to, like, outsmart a, a vision in some way. But it doesn't really make sense. 
Right. They each have to do one, like, test of character. And it's like the cowardly one has to be brave and, like, fight some wolves. The smart one has to, like, concede that sometimes he's wrong. And then Balthazar has to cry. <laughs> you see, I missed that. I, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. So it's like they have to be in touch with their full emotional spectrum. That's the test. But they all have like booby traps that go along with it. So I was on board because I love I love a string, like a hallway of booby trap rooms. <laughs> you are an Indiana Jones fan. Oh, yeah. And then I love how like we already kind of mentioned the artifacts, but like when they come down, it's not like, oh, here's gold, like literally a piece of gold. And here's frankincense and myrrh like actual things that existed they're like glowing orbs in the sky that come down through celestial power it's like okay we really got to lean into like the fantasy adventure element of this right and then and then it becomes end of evangelion so we have the dark moon rises and unleashes a horde of demons over the earth i definitely remember herod getting in his chariot and riding out so this is like the like the devil riding out in the 76 film. He's attended by Belial's with him. Well, hold on. Belial's not just with him, but now he's a dinosaur. But I don't I don't know at what point he turns into a dinosaur. I guess it's like after they get there. After they come out of the the cave, usually these types of films they get they're defeated first and then they turn into something. He's already transformed by the time they get out. And he's like a freaking plesiosaur. <laughs> like he's got the fins, he's got the weird head and once again, we have the, the three wise men fighting the devil, this time in kind of a dragon format. You have like the Book of Revelation type stuff. And they they defeat him by blowing up the friggin' moon. <laughs> right. Yeah, so there's like a whole thing like, remember, David defeated Goliath. And then one of the wise men remembers that and he's like able to summon a sling. And he launches the sling and you're like, oh, he's going to take out the dragon with it. <laughs> it's going to hit, hit the dragon in the forehead. No. Twist. It spins, it curves, like this guy's like Randy Johnson throwing a curveball. It's It curves around the dragon and goes to the moon and hits the moon and the moon blows up, of course. And then the plesiosaur just falls into the Dead Sea or something. Yeah, because he's, remember, he's sensitive to light, so now he's getting the sun hitting him, and he that makes him fall and die, apparently. I don't know, uh, so, whatever. <laughs> I mean, it was the Dead Sea, you know, it's called the Dead Sea for a reason. It's, uh, it's uh, salty, you can't, nothing lives there. Not even the devil. Oh, so much for Belial. Right, and then Nero. <laughs> He's been a bad little boy, so they give him coal for Christmas. Uh, it's not supposed to be the origin of that tradition. It's earlier, we see a Santa Claus. It's like when they're having a fight in the streets of Agrabah, which is how, they, how the wives would meet each other. Oh, yeah, Santa shows up. I was like, what's going on? Yeah, they transform the thieves into all sorts of weird things, including a, a Santa Claus. Like One of them gets turned into like a llama or something. It was one of those eyebrow-raising moments. And then after everybody's defeated, all the bad guys defeated, we see the three wise men, the three magi, bringing their gifts to a place that's glowing to the king of kings. And then it fades back to Jimmy. So we don't learn that it's actually the nativity. We don't see Jesus or Mary or anything. They just, they reach the king of kings, and that's the end of the story. Of course, when we hop back to the future... Jimmy is enraptured with the story. And, of course, his uncle or whatever is like, oh, maybe you'll get present from the wise men. <laughs> and Jimmy says, maybe I will, even though he didn't get any Christmas presents. I'm trying to think, like, in what scenario 
you would expect a present on Epiphany when you didn't get one on Christmas. But then he goes to sleep and we actually see the three wise men again delivering the gift. I was like, oh, this is interesting. It's like now they're time traveling wizards, too. Well, for what it's worth, we got that in the 76 version when they're at the nativity scene at the end. Somewhat. I forget if it was Mary or who makes the decision, but they're like, well, three wise men, you're actually going to live forever and you'll be responsible to take presents to everyone in the world. And the wise men are like, that's going to be a lot of work, but okay. <laughs> it's like, wow, you, you did something great. Now you're cursed to an eternity of servitude. Oh, wow. That's a big win there. Yeah. So we have the important, uh, the moral of the story is that gifts are the most important part of the Christmas season. <laughs> and uh, while it's important, what is the gift that Jimmy gets? Do you remember what it is? I honestly do not remember. He gets a rat for Epiphany. The hobos brought him a rat. <laughs> That's great. He opens up a present and it's a literal rat in a box. I thought that was hilarious. Like, wow, happy Epiphany, buddy. Have this rat. Okay. <laughs> Dan is not a big one for pets. At least they shouldn't be gifts. That's one I feel strongly about. Pets should not be gifts. Did you receive gifts on Epiphany as kids? No. Did you? Yeah, I did. Oh, really? No, I was always, we always got like one last gift of the Epiphany, which is how I learned what you know the Epiphany was, and I thought that was pretty cool. That's something to look forward to. Where it came up in my family was that was the date it was acceptable to leave your Christmas decorations outside up until was January sixth. Then you had to start taking stuff down. Otherwise, you virgin to Febulites. I mean, there are Christmas-related things that happen throughout January. Yeah, January sixth seems like a great like you shouldn't have to take them down before the end of the actual Christmas liturgical season. I was like, taking them down at the 26th just seems barbaric to me. You got to enjoy the holiday a little. We have all this waiting up to it. Oh, Brian and I ranted about that in an episode recently. I'm completely with you on that. Yeah, I, I thought that sounded familiar. Was it the Nightmare Before Christmas episode? I think, is that when we talked about it? I think so, yeah. Okay, yeah, that was the last one I listened to. So you, one way you can celebrate Christmas this season is by watching these two movies <laughs> <laughs> with your whole family. <laughs> right. So I want to make sure we, we're going to talk about the 2006 one. Uh, before we transition to that, any other things that pop out to you from the the 2003 one? I just now I'm actually I have the credits up and it's it's it, it attributes it to Cartoon Saloon, which what? At least there are some credits to Cartoon. I don't know if it's just the dubbing, but it's in the credits. So now I feel like I got to do more research on the production of this. So what is Cartoon Saloon? Oh, no. you No, no, go away. Um, Cartoon Saloon, they're responsible for the, the Secret of Kells and the Song of the Sea and other animated movies like Wolfwalkers. Oh, is that the Irish group? Yeah. Okay. It, their, their films are exceptionally beautiful, unlike this one. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if they consulted on it or something like that, but I'm not making this up. It actually says it. Before we moved on, I wanted to emphasize... How many werewolves there are in this film? <laughs> because I feel like we only talked a little bit about that, but they're constant. Like they're the mooks, they're the stormtroopers. They're always running around. They kind of take the place of what's the name of the the weirdo in the the seventy six one? Mercio. They're doing some of Mercio's work there. Yeah, they're they're much cooler than Mercio. Yeah. There was like a rack focus at one point in the animation, and I always think that's cool when they can draw a rack focus. So. A point for that to the 2003 film. 
it was not utterly inept animation. Like it really just felt like generic early 2000s direct to video animation. And like, honestly, not as bad as like some of the Disney ones are atrocious, man. Like the the worst of the two uh, Beauty and the Beast ones is so bad. Like this looks better than that. It's got some color to it and like only a couple of the characters look horrendous. <laughs> and yeah, maybe I'm giving it too much credit. Gavin seemed really down on the way this movie looked. Well, I did see it first. So that may have that may have prejudiced me. <laughs> yeah. If you watch the 76 one first, this is a quantum leap in animation technology. All right. So as Gavin mentioned early on in the episode, usually when we have guests, well, usually when Dan invites a guest, the guest gets free reign, gets gets to make the assignment that we watch. The times that I have had a guest so far, it's been more like I picked the movie and bring someone that I know would be interested to talk about that movie. This is our first time assigning something for somebody who is coming on as a third party to watch. I thought it was apropos. This is the Three Wise Men film that I am familiar with. It's just this short. I think it comes from one of the animation studios that puts out the various church Media, it's the kind of thing that ends up on a shelf of DVDs in your Sunday school classroom. But I think it's got pretty good production values, all things considered. I mean, it's it's simple animation. The characters don't have noses, so it's stylistic. They're, they're kind of like the Fisher-Price people, the little, like, egg people. And what, what do they call those? Little, little tykes or something? Like little people, I think is actually what they're called. Okay, you know what I'm, you know what I'm getting at, right? I had a school bus when I was like five years old that had, uh, it was a, uh, you could roll it around and each of the little seats was a little pod where you could put one of the egg people. Anyway, that's what these guys look like. So very simplified character design. But what I like about it is the writing. So it's told in this verse style, narrated by Andy Griffith as Melkor. It tells the Christmas story efficiently and manages to pull in nods to a lot of, like, any popular Christmas song that's still religious. Like, actually involves the nativity story in some way. It's going to pull in some little nod to that Christmas song. So the little drummer boy is here. It came upon a midnight clear. There's a lot of them. Over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain. And... It's all tied into the the poetic verse. And some of the lines I think are clever. There's Herod on his throne, musing, The little town of Bethlehem, your scripture tells a lie. I must deduce it won't produce a king as great as I. Okay, so Gavin, what did you think? I thought it was cute. Mostly harmless. Short. There are two things about it I didn't like. I have memories of my childhood being subjected to the Andy Griffith, Griffith show, which I never really caught into. And so when I heard his voice, I, I got defensive. <laughs> and I was not so taken to the sing-songy writing, which is kind of like Twas the Night Before Christmas style. Was, was, I think I called it a Hallmark movie, by which I meant it sounds like a Hallmark greeting card. I was less than impressed with some of the rhymes. <laughs> and... I was very grateful it was only 20 minutes long. But the animation, I mean, it chooses a very simple style. Uh, character designs are, are appealing. Voice work is, is fine. I can't fault Andy Griffith for, for having a voice that I dislike, but it's fine. 
folksy. It's just, I don't know, it's just a fine movie. It's definitely better than the other two, but not nearly as interesting. <laughs> yeah, it fits because it's three wise men. It doesn't fit with the others because this is like the conventional version of the story. This is like the nativity scene as a 20 minute short. Nobody fights the devil. Nobody takes out an eyeball. No mermaids seducing wise men in this. No, we have once again a mix up. I mean, mix up like the names. I needed to make a a spreadsheet to keep the names uh, of each wise. I mean, the names are the same, but the personalities are different. Like Caspar is like this young dude of indeterminate origin. Right. He was like almost Chinese. They they make a point that he's from further out than the other ones. And Balthazar looks he looks like a combination of Gaspar and Balthazar and the other two. Uh, he's swarthier. Uh, he also looks like he carries a scimitar. He's rotund. <laughs> it's like there's not a lot of room for character development. You just have the three wise men traveling to Bethlehem and then another annunciation. A little more reverent than the one in 1976, but still like when Mary like fell down her face like she was a Muppet. I think it's lame that we didn't see the angels. It's just indifferent glowing light. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's like light, blinding light coming in. That's the the Chosen does that, and I hate it. I want some real angels. Wait, what's the Chosen again? <laughs> Angel Studios TV show about the life of Christ. Oh, it's the TV show. That's right. You talked about that. Maybe on Discord, or I, I can't remember. You talked about it at some point. I've talked to you about it because I think the person playing young Mary is very attractive. And you sent me, yeah, I'm going to out you. Uh, you sent me a picture of her in a bathing suit with the caption, Hail Holy Queen. Oh, yeah. Which I saved my computer and I very much appreciate. She's a very attractive woman. <laughs> we try not to get too thirsty on Maine. I got, I've been called out for it. No, that's all right. I'm glad we're all doing it. But my favorite part, the thing I think is absolutely eight out of eight. I don't know what I'm ultimately going to give the film. I don't want to sound too biased. Is the music. The soundtrack to this short is by a Hawaiian group called the Brothers Casimero, and they do this just epic treatment of joy to the world mixed with God rest ye merry gentlemen, mixed with angels we have heard on high. And it kind of interweaves through the scenes. And like every time it takes off on one of the music cues, I think it's really well done. Like good editing, soaring score it's the hawaiian thing was a little unexpected because otherwise this is like a very low flavor i guess like it doesn't really feel like something that would have this this kind of intense score to it and it definitely amplifies it a little bit i agree and it looks like jerusalem is in montana <laughs> i don't think in terms of trying to make things look exotic i don't why maybe that wasn't the goal but that bothered me it's like the rolling hills the fact that you can look down at Jerusalem, which is not not that high up. It made me think of um, Super Mario Galaxy a little bit because it's like so rounded. They're like, you see them like turning as they kind of walk over it. But you're right. I guess it wouldn't actually be that hilly. I was like, you can see Jerusalem from like, you can look down at it from the Mount of Olives, which I think they do in the Three Wise Men. So they look down at it. They're way too high up, by the way. But at least it's like dusty. There's like a valley around it. It's not a great place to graze your sheep, which makes me wonder about the shepherds. <laughs> Places change over time. So, I mean, the, the use of Christmas carols, I, it's fine. It's not my favorite thing. They do. Have you seen the Gospel According to Matthew, the, the Pasolini film? No, I really need to. It uses a lot of, um, it likes to use traditional music, mm. uh, which I find, it kind of takes me out of it. 
a little bit is um, I like things to be a little weird and like, I mean, anachronisms are fine, but it's the wrong kind of anachronism. It's too familiar. You would expect it. But also this is not like it's an undemanding film. So I can't, I can't knock it for the things I don't like. <laughs> it's not going to be an eight out of eight for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I appreciate you being game to watch it even as part of your episode. Yeah. About 20 minutes. And it did end with a proper nativity scene. I went beyond that fact. You have the flight to Egypt, which the other stiffed us on. It actually implies that something bad's about to happen. It doesn't tell us what. Right. It shows Herod sending off his soldiers. Anything else we want to mention about the very first Noel, which I, I want to say I'm a little confused because I've seen it marked as both the first, very first Noel and the Three Wise Men. So I don't know what the official title of this is. I'll have to do a little more research. It's got to be a regional thing, like how Zootopia is Zootropolis on the Disney Plus thumbnail. I thought the very first Noel was the original title, and then they re-released it like several years later, like within the past five years, under the name The Three Wise Men, which seems to be, I mean, it focuses on the wise men. It seems maybe like a better title choice. Yeah, let people know. And they do that, like... The 1951 Christmas Carol is actually called Scrooge, but like all the marketing, if you buy the DVD, it's like the Christmas Carol in big letters and then Scrooge, you'll see underneath it. It happens. Do they use the song the first Noel in the, in the short? I don't think they do, you know? Yeah, that, that might be one reason for the title change. Oh, man. Because they have a lot of them mixed together, but you're right. I don't remember whether or not we hear the, the, the first Noel. Well, we, this has been good. We're, we're running pretty long here. Do we want to go ahead and throw a rating on these? I think it's time. Go for it. All right. So is it good as our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So I guess we'll do Brian, Gavin, me. Let's start with the 76 Mexican film. Los Tres Reyes Magos, or something like that. Brian, is the 1976 Three Wise Guys movie good? This movie is so unusual. It's like a multimedia art experiment. I imagine it didn't cost a bundle, but it has some interesting things about it. I like Mercio as the put-upon little demon and the goofy III comic relief. It's, it's hard to rate because, like, objectively, the, the production value is not very high. But I like some of these ideas. Uh, I would say maybe a, a two sounds really harsh. I'll say a three. Three out of eight. No, that's too high. That's too high because this is like, it's barely an animated feature. I will go two with the caveat that there were things that I liked. All right. So that's a not good. A two out of eight from Brian. Gavin, is this good? Uh, it is not good. I think, I think Brian is being exceptionally generous. I think it's very not good. Uh, but that doesn't, you know, I have a different relationship to bad movies than than ordinary, well-functioning people. I, I search out once. If it's bad, it's that means I enjoy watching it. I definitely enjoyed watching this film. So this is why Letterbox is a heart function. I think I gave this one a heart, but I would. Probably have given it a two, but it is worse, I think, than the 2003 film, and I need uh, to be able to give that one a higher grade. So I think you're going to put out as very not good. Is that your one out of eight? Yep. Okay. So that gets a, a bottom mark from Gavin. For me, 
I, I don't know. I'm kind of torn because I really did not enjoy watching it. <laughs> and it had some kind of interesting things every now and then. But the reason I'm going to give it a two out of eight instead of a one out of eight is not really like my own personal enjoyment. It's first of all, it's just weird enough to have some interesting things, particularly if you know the Christmas story. It's got like weird, crazy riffs on that and just batshit stuff happening next to that, which makes it all seem weirder. And there's some appeal to that. And then also, I think that what tips it over into two instead of one is that I, I do respect uh, Trailblazer, something that kind of paved the path for, for Mexican animation. So I'm going to give this a, a two out of eight, a, a not good, but kind of with the context that unless you really like strange films or you really got to see every religious film or you're like an animation historian, don't feel any guilt skipping this one. You're not going to get as much enjoyment out of it as plenty of other films. So that's that's me on the, the 1976 one. Let's move to the 2003 film, which is our, our centerpiece of the discussion this evening. And that is the Three Wise Men from 2003. So Brian, is this one good? So Gavin, you were exactly right in that I was waffling on the 76 one, and ultimately I decided that one's got to get a two so that I can put this one a little bit higher. I'm going to give Los Tres Reyes Magos from 2003 <laughs> a three out of eight, which, I mean, it's not one that you should rush out and see, but it's bonkers. I never expected this many werewolves. And there are some moments where I thought the animation was kind of cool. I like a good booby trap. I mean, it's so far removed from the Christmas story. It's like, this is what they were doing on their days off. But yeah, I don't know. A good pick. Your review, Gavin, caught my eye, and I'm glad that we watched it. What about you, Gavin? Well, I think you could probably guess where I'm going to, I'm going to go with it. Is this is this is clearly a step up from the 76 film. Uh, but it is, is also, it is not a good film. So I think that means, uh, according to your rubrics, it is not good. A two out of eight. Um, I definitely, first of all, I said I enjoyed watching the 76 film, which is half true. It was kind of actively painful. It's like, you know, you have to watch because it's good for you. I, I had to stop watching it. And I did not really want this one to end. It may have been too short. Between the two, I would definitely recommend this one to my bad movie-loving friends. It's the one that you should prioritize. Even if the other one, I, I'm not even sure which one is crazier. Because they have, they have, uh, it's a trade-off. They trade off some things. But yeah, not, not, not a film I'd recommend to the general population, but I, I did cherish the time watching it. I'm very glad that Pulp Platoons put it on my radar. <laughs> this is also going to get a three out of eight for me. And we call that a not, not good on this podcast. And I actually kind of enjoyed myself with this one just because it is so, so ridiculous in the context of it being a Christmas movie. It's like the least possible Christmas movie. It's like just a generic action animation movie that happens to plug in the three wise men and a couple of other things that you might connect to a Christmas movie, plus that framing story. But in general, it's just like a knockoff direct-to-DVD inspired by the DreamWorks movies, but then also Aladdin. And also, obviously, like I said, pulling in some stuff from Lord of the Rings and Indiana Jones and just, just a generic, but insane. Generic's not the right word because it's it's got so much ridiculous stuff in it. <laughs> 
and the fact that it it zips by 70 minutes, I actually would definitely watch this ahead of the 76 one. No contest. I actually have this as kind of a higher three out of eight just because it, it, it goes down fairly easy as far as religious travesties go, I, I guess I would say. Yeah, I did look up and there are some cartoon saloon credits on this. So that's something I'm going to need to parse into more is like this was like a very early something they consulted on or something. I don't know. But just a, just a real wacky one. Cuckoo bananas. I'm proud of Cartoon Saloon for, for being better than this when they actually got to make a feature on their own. Yeah, I saw Nora Tuomi's name in the credits. So I thought maybe, you know, this is another Cartoon Saloon. Nope, it's the same one. The same people. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, it makes you like this film even more. Early days. It doesn't make it better, but I like it more now. <laughs> so, the 2006, presumably direct-to-DVD short, The Three Wise Men, or the very first Noel. I like this one a lot. I'm glad that you let us watch it, Gavin. I just tend to vibe with presentations like this. If it's a short that does its job effectively and quickly, and I mean, just two weeks ago or whatever, when we did Nightmare Before Christmas, I gave an eight out of eight to Vincent. Or maybe we even forgot to rate Vincent. I think we did. I think we left it on the cutting room floor, but I would have given it an eight. Yeah, and I would have given it, I think, a six. So I'll throw that on our record books, too. But for this one, I'll temper it a little bit in the spirit of our, our you know, Socratic seminar here. I'll be a little bit swayed. I'm going to give it a seven out of eight. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I like the verse. I like the vocal performances. But what really sells it for me is the music and how it uses the music. So that's an exceptionally good from Brian, a seven out of eight. What about you, Gavin? I mean, this this was straight down the middle for me. It's a four out of eight. Neither is lukewarm, neither good nor bad. Just kind of a, a fun diversion. Um, I just don't have a lot to say about it. It is clearly superior to the other two, but it is not nearly as fun. Uh, so in some ways, you know, the, the middle score is kind of the worst thing you can get. It means it's uh, kind of bland. How is it supposed to compete with this? You'd have to bring in, you know, the star Journey to Bethlehem or... Even the Joseph Christmas specials, which all have something a little eye-raising about them. That's uh, not unhappy I watched it. I will be happy to log in on Letterboxd. I've been thinking about if there are any like compelling nativity story movies that, that I like unironically, because it's not really a story. It's the beginning of a story. Right. And if I you just treat it like a story, it doesn't quite have enough meat to it, you know? The movie, The Nativity Story, it was it's kind of functional, but it's also bland. So it's just like, it seems like a real, I don't know how you would do it except to, to uh, you know, blow up the ship like like the, the Spanish language films do. Uh, that's all I have to say about it. So you said that it's clearly better, but it's less fun. So I would say, is that does that even mean it's better? Is it actually better as a viewing product, uh, as an experience? And I'm going to give this a three out of eight, not because there's anything I particularly dislike about it, but I just, I don't think that I'll remember it beyond the weird trivia of it being voiced by Andy Griffith and the music is good. I do like the music, but like, I don't know. It, it was fine. And I'm I'm glad that, that Brian really vibes with it. And I can, I can definitely see how the, like, if you're kind of pulling it in, maybe if I had just watched it independently and not after like two utter pieces of insanity i would have come at it from a different mindset but it just felt so tame and as you said down the middle 
and just it's there it's fine and i wouldn't mind showing it to my daughters because they don't know these nativity tropes inside and out the way that i do so you know it might feel a little more interesting to them i'm not sure i would show the other two to my children i i don't think i would <laughs> i definitely would prefer the 2003 one if i did I can tell you I would not show them the 1976 one and the 2003 one. I think I'd wait a couple of years then maybe. But yeah, the 2006 one, there's no devils. There's no extended fight scene between a snake and a horse. Well, hold on. There's less racism. Less racism. I think that's the key thing. <laughs> Anyways, get, getting off topic here. Not, nothing against it. It just it didn't inspire me. And maybe I'll watch it again when I'm less burnt down on wise men and vibe with it a little more myself. But that is the 2006, the very first Noel, AKA the three wise men and most of the marketing I saw. So this has been our ultra supercharged three wise men batshit episode. Gavin, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Yes. Glad to have you joining all the way from France. Yeah. I don't think we said that in the intro, did we, that we are doing this 9 PM Eastern, which I thought Gavin wanted to do. Well, what makes you think I want to get up at 3 AM? You know, you're a weird guy. I don't know. Now that I know, uh, this is that was important to tell me. It's 5.40 a.m. here. I've, I've got <laughs> two hours left uh, to sleep. Well, thank you for waking up for us. Uh, now, next time I'll do some bargaining. Yeah, next time you pick the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's a deal. Anyway, thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm very tired, and I'm going to get back to sleep. All right. Enjoy. Thanks for listening, listeners. And Gavin, say hi to your, your family for us. Sure. I don't think we mentioned that uh, Gavin has a newborn, so thank you for taking some of your precious sleep time. He was baptized today. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, that's why I'm so so out of it. So that's a very important day for me. Yeah, it's exciting. This is a good day. Good day, but I need a rest. So uh, take care. Take care.